okay, so so this idea of a god or being or a supreme being of some sort was something that you found in your research, like that even Hammurabi had that that concept and that idea. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Charles Fickner, who is a retired public servant, but still very much interested in public affairs. And in particular, he's enjoying his observations, we're enjoying his observations with respect to federal, provincial, and municipal politics. Charles, it's great to have you here with us tonight. Very pleased to be with you. Awesome. Charles, I we've been talking about uh, you and I and, and that this is one of the things that we have been uh, really concerned about in recent times, and that is the level of public confidence in our public institutions. And you and I have been chatting about this, and I wonder if you could just share some of those thoughts. Well, the, there was a recent Angus Reid poll and in it, they looked at a number of uh, public institutions to see what the public confidence had been. And they compared numbers from 2021 and today. So we're looking at just mm. a two year period and public confidence in the House of Commons has apparently dropped from 52%, an appallingly low number to start with, to 38% in the last two years. And confidence in the Supreme Court has dropped from 69% to 54% in those same two years. So that raises very interesting questions about what people expect of the House of Commons, what they expect of the Supreme Court. Mm. And, and if our confidence levels have dropped down to the levels of roughly 40% or, or uh, less, that raises serious concerns about the the nature of those institutions, about how they're performing and how that performance compares to what people would expect. Right. Well, you know, when we think about uh, government, and obviously it would certainly seem that we're, uh, the public confidence is under stress in Canada, and there have been just one scandal after another, uh, when it comes to government, uh, politicians, and so forth, yet we need to, I think, step back and look at it and say, okay, what is the role of our government? And in particular, what is the role of parliament? Now, I know you've done a lot of uh, study, a lot of work in researching the role of government uh, through the years. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what you have discovered in your own personal study. Well, let me make a comment. This is not just a Canadian problem. If you look at the United States, we see a massive mm. divide where people have lack of confidence in institutions. It's longstanding, but getting worse. You see the, the problems now in many countries in Europe. You see it in Britain. France these days is in an absolute uproar. Um, you see disagreements, uh, huge protests going on uh, these day, right today and, and yesterday in Israel. So this is a, right. a problem, one might say, of the West, that, that governments seem to, to have lost the confidence of people. So the question is, what, what is it that people would expect? Mm. Now, in, in what I, mm -hmm. uh, when I left the government, I started to write 
uh, I was really annoyed with many things or concerned, let me say, about many things that I had seen. Um, I, I was involved at a policy level and I've helped uh, develop policies and programs that have cost Canadian taxpayers as much as $2 billion. And, and you look at these and you say, have they worked well? And, and uh, have governments managed them well? And, and the answer is generally no, from my own perspective. So I started to look at many things uh, and to do a lot of reading and writing. Uh, it was, I was aiming to write, but I was doing a great deal of reading to try to find out what people had expected of governments over time. And I started to work and mm. I developed a draft of a book, which I think I mentioned to you, called Lost Principles of Our Civil Heritage. And what that mm -hmm. book did is it looked back uh, historically uh, as far back as we have records in the, the heritage of, of the West, and going back to ancient Egypt, ancient Sumer, uh, ancient Babylon, and, and on, and try to see what was articulated as the principles that allow us to live together well as human beings. And what's the role of government in keeping those principles mm -hmm. applied? And, and so what I was trying to find out is not what was disagree what the disagreements were between one philosopher and another, one politician and another. I was trying to find out what was the common ground. What did we keep trying to strive to achieve, to allow people to live together comfortably and well in a civil and civilized way? And and mm -hmm. the, the, what what becomes clear is when you look historically is that there were principles that were articulated over and over and over again. And we, we obviously evolved. And, and if you look at ancient Greece, there, there was a class of slaves and there were a class of citizens. Uh, but if you, and we, we now accept that everyone who, who is a citizen of the country is a citizen. We don't have a class of slaves. But among the citizens, what you found was a common ground of belief that citizens mattered. And underpinning that was a very mm -hmm. interesting notion, which is largely disappearing now in our society. And that was the notion uh, that there was an omnipotent created God who created and loved us all. Now, whether this is a, a true story or a myth, it mm -hmm. doesn't really matter. The fact is it took hold in society and it had profound consequences. And one of the consequences, one of the significant mm -hmm. consequences is that if God created and loved us all, then all of us matter. And we as individuals have no right to cause harm or, mm -hmm. or abuse or exploit other citizens. So, so the, that principle, you see it reflected, for example, very explicitly in Hammurabi's code, that the, the Hammurabi is there uh, as the leader, but his job is not to impose his will his job is to, to exercise the duties assigned to him by this omnipotent creating God. And, and if you move to Aristotle now, and Plato. Okay, so, so this idea of a God or, being, or a supreme being of some sort was something that you found in your research, like that even Hammurabi had that, that concept and that idea? He very clearly in his code, he, he, he says, I am here to implement what the gods tell me to do. I, 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 am, I am following their will. And, and you've, there are other articulations mm. of this. Not everyone used the term God. You, you find in Aristotle and Plato, 
the the, the term right reason, uh, you you find nah, I'm right. probably wrong there. They they use the term natural law, and and the natural law you mm -hmm. find is the same sort of concept that all persons matter. They all have to be treated with respect. You cannot use your you cannot use them as 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 a means to achieving your end. They are there as an end in themselves, and and your job mm. is to respect that and to live in harmony with with everyone else. You you see that being reflected okay. in, in those old uh, times. You see it in uh, you see it in Cicero. You see it in in uh, the uh, the ancient Roman codes. In that the ancient Roman code, uh, right? You see it in Aristotle and Plato too. They draw a distinction between what is a law and what is an administrative rule. And the laws tended to be mm. beyond mm -hmm. government. Governments governments are bound to live under the law, and of course they can develop administrative rules. They can say you can you can make a rule that you pay this much taxes. This is how taxes are collected. This is how they're distributed. But those administrative rules have to be subordinate to a mm -hmm. set of principles, which essentially say all persons matter and they have to be treated with respect. No one can abuse. No one can exploit. In 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 Rome, they they had a clear distinction um, on this, in that they had a distinction between leges and use, J U S. And the, the, the juice were the, mm. uh, that is justice. Those are the laws that pre-exist government that mm. governments are bound by. And, and the leges are the legislation, right. which, which has the administrative type rules. You, you find that uh, through the so, Middle Ages, you find that. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, j j yeah, just let me kind of unpack it a little bit. So what we've got here is this idea of the ruler is in essence like a, uh, is in a fiduciary relationship, a, a relationship of trust between uh, the government and the individuals or the citizens. And even though we would have uh, different understandings down through the years with respect to exactly what that relationship looks like, but in a, in, in a basic sense, it's the idea that the ruler is there not for their own self-aggrandizement, but simply to ensure uh, that individuals are retreating properly. And that's why, of course, uh, we have the notion of citizenship. Um, and, and the idea here as well that I just want to make sure that our listeners um, note, because this, I think, is a key point, and that is you had the idea of, of uh, justice or juice, as you point out, J-U-S, and uh, legate or L-E-G-E-S. And so we got this idea of the law being um, an understanding that there is something outside of the state itself. In other words, law pre-exists the state and the idea of natural law, the idea of a supreme being or beings, uh, the idea of gods, the idea that uh, there are certain basic instinctual understandings of what it means to be a human and what the relationships are to be uh, between humans, the idea of fairness, just play, justice, and, uh, and truth and so on. We see that, of course, up at the Supreme Court, which I want us to unpack here later in our discussion. But so anyhow, so we got this big picture now of, of the idea and the understanding with respect to uh, the roles of government and the roles of the law. Okay, 
So I just wanted to reiterate that. And as you're saying now, in Rome. So, so in Rome, they had this distinction very clearly between the leges and the use, and, and, and justice and, and legislation. And, and when decisions mm. were taken, when conflicts arose between individuals, uh, I'm going to jump around in time as well as I say this. What, what you found mm -hmm. is, I'll move to, to some of the British courts now, what the courts began to do, there was a distinction between, uh, laws were often not written, they were understood. And, and when one of the first articulations in the British system of government was at the time of Alfred the Great. And if you look at the laws that he wrote, uh, the, the, they began with the Ten Commandments. So there's your reflection of this, this set of rules mm. uh, by the creator, fully accepted by society at the time, this omnipotent, uh, uh, beneficent uh, creator. Uh, and, and so the law was set under the Ten Commandments. You will follow this. And the king's duty was to, to uphold that. And, and so the, in the courts, in the British courts, the job of the courts, when you had a conflict, someone says, I, want, I think this is just, and someone else says, this is just based on this principle or this principle. The job of the courts was to assess this against those fundamental unwritten rules and, and, and to determine what would God, they were to discover, in effect, what God would do in resolving this conflict between the rights of, of, of different individuals. And, and we still have that word discovery built into our uh, legal system, but in a very different sense now. But the job was to discover uh, what yeah, the courts right. would do, what God would do. And, and so the, you can look at the articulations. There are several of them. There's a 13th century articulation of the law in Britain, a very detailed uh, description of this. You, you find it in Germany in, in a document called the Sachsenspiegel. You find it in Britain in the 17th century in Blackstone. And you find again that these these principles are articulated over and over again that the, the fundamental job of keeping a society the role of the courts in keeping a society civil and civilized is to discover what is the right thing to do and and very clearly in in that articulation the job of governments is the is that's the role of trustee of protecting the rights of persons it is not they, they have governments have immense power, of course, but the power can only legitimately be used to uphold those rights of each and every citizen. They cannot use the power to impose their their own will and take away those God-given rights, those natural rights, uh, those the, those right reason kind of rights of individuals who are uh, free and uh, have a right to be free do whatever they wish, as long as they do not impinge on or harm the rights of any other person. So, so governments are trustees. And, and, and that's reflected again and again. If I can go back to the, the discussion on the, 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 the God myth and how it played out, it's quite interesting. You see, in, in the scholastic period, a massive amount of effort was devoted by the, by the clerics, by the, uh, the theologians, the, the philosophers, to, to trying to understand, uh, to, to trying to defend the, uh, the existence of God. So, so if, you, if you study philosophy, your early philosophy courses begin to look at the existence of God and the proof of the existence of God, and you will see uh, one philosopher will, will produce one argument, and it'll, uh, yes, that's it. 
and then and then someone will say no that doesn't work and and so later on you get another argument for the proof proof of the existence of god and then that one is debunked and then another and another they weren't doing this to prove the existence of god so much as they were doing it to prove that there was this higher authority that created the source of these laws, this, this set of fundamental justice rules that apply to everyone. And eventually, you, you find in, in the philosophical record that uh, those notions that you could prove the existence of God and therefore have, the, uh, have those rules apply above the government of the day um, was debunked. You found David Hume and others doing this. And then Immanuel Kant came along and he said, well, look, okay, I accept that. We're never going to find a proof of the existence of God and therefore the justification for these, these God's laws, if you like. Uh, so he tried to develop a, a set of rules based on reason and, and, and to, to effectively prove the same set of fundamentals. This is how we should interact with other persons in our society. We should treat them fairly, justly, no abuse, no exploitation. And, and so, so historically, what you see is a consistent attempt to find justifications for applying these rules of just conduct uh, and having these rules that overarch the government of the day and, and that constrain what a government can do as trustee in upholding those, those rights and those principles of justice for all of the members of a society. So it, it's there, it's built into our system. Uh, it's been built in for millennia. But then of course we had uh, Nietzsche who came along and, and said that God is dead. Now that, that's, Nietzsche is actually very interesting and, and you see different philosophical debates about what Nietzsche meant in this. Now, as I read Nietzsche and mm. some others do too, uh, what Nietzsche was in fact saying, this, so this is the end of the 19th century. Uh, Kant has come out with this categorical imperative: you must treat others as as a, a as an end in themselves, not as a means to achieve your ends. Treat them with respect; they are mm -hmm. individuals; they're worthwhile. Um, and, and governments are there to uphold that. And Nietzsche comes along and he he looks at all of this and he says, "Get real. God is dead." That's, we don't believe, believe in that. We don't act on that. Our society operates on the principle that there are men and supermen. And the supermen uh, take it upon themselves. They, they have the right to impose their will on the mere men and therefore to command to, uh, and control. So he was, in effect, looking at the transition that was beginning to happen in government away from the notion that there was a God who had created these uh, these rules that applied and demanded equal justice for everyone and seeing what governments had in fact become, which were more authoritarian uh, places uh, where uh, the power was sought by individuals who did not seek the power uh, to act as trustees for everyone, but to impose their agendas, their wishes to pursue whatever they wanted to do. But nothing was new there. I mean, you see that in, in the history of kings Kings will re regularly say, I am there as God's agent. I am, uh, and, and the popes were involved in, in the European system too, uh, justifying kings as God's agent. But you found once they had the power, there was the tendency very frequently to try to abuse that power to impose their will. And, and whether it was through the church, through the philosophers, or through things like the Magna Carta, 
you see the, the kings being constrained again and again and again and put back in their role. So that in the Magna Carta, for example, there's a clause that says the king uh, has the authority to do all these things, but if he should fail to do what he is required to do under these big principles, then we have the right to seize him, his possessions and his family and constrain him until he does the right thing. So, so it's, it's not new, but Nietzsche is now saying even the concept of God, uh, which provided this overarching uh, set of principles, is now gone. It's forgotten. And we just have raw power, uh, men and supermen with, uh, with the right to impose. Right. And, and of course, that then gave Nietzsche, I guess, almost a sense of, uh, what would you say, a... Um... A hopelessness, perhaps, or at least that there's a um, a worry about where that's going to lead in our modern society. If you look at the the outcome of this, uh, the, the notion of men and supermen uh, was embraced very very actively uh, in 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 Germany. Uh, you you see it being taken on very mm -hmm. forcefully. Rather than focusing so much on Nietzsche, he's just a, a, an observer in time saying we're headed in this direction. And if you look right. where we are now, we, we are really far, far beyond that. And if, if I look in the Canadian Parliament yeah. as an example, in our, in our own constitution, uh, there is no mention whatsoever of political parties. They have no role in our constitution. Right. They, right. We nor, nor is there a place for. So sorry. There, nor is there a place uh, for a prime minister. Like there is no mention of prime minister in our Canadian constitution. That's correct. That's correct. But so so what we have is is this. We've inherited this system, which in theory gives us a whole bunch of uh, of protections. Um, we have the law which was a common law, which derived from these principles of fundamental justice. And that is uh, intended to be completely a separate body. Their job is to determine, is this a right thing to do? Mm. Can it be done? That's what law is all about. Administrative rules, we sort of muddied the two together. But if we, if we look at the law part of it, the use part of it, the juice, uh, not, not, the, uh, not the leges, uh, the, the courts right. were there to uphold right. law. And, and, and you then had the parliament. Well, let me jump to the top end. You had the government, which was the administrative arm, the executive arm of government, which has the job of acting on be, as trustee on behalf of all of the citizens and determining what should be done and how it should be done in, in, in an administrative sense to up, uphold those rules. And, and of course, it's the government that has immense power. And that's that's the... Historically, it was the king and his court. Um, but separate from that, we, we had the House of Commons, which was created. Well, it, 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 a House of Commons, per se, the first one was, in fact, created uh, it, at, late in the, uh, in the 13th century. King John was forced. He, he was seen to be a very abusive king. And so he was constrained and forced to sign the Magna Carta that said, you will uphold these rules. And if you doesn't, don't, we will we can do whatever we want to restrain you until you do the right thing. But uh, the subsequent kings, Henry III, mm. um, King John tried to get around that. And Henry III was even worse. And so there was a rebellion uh, against him uh, led by uh, uh, Simon de Montfort, who 
uh, took the parliament and he created the parliament with representatives of the people for the first time, formal representatives of the burghers, the, the towns, etc. And their job was to constrain the king and to prevent the king from doing, from abusing the power. So that was the people's body that was then created. And, and so it was consisted of representatives of the people. It could constrain the king on any, almost anything on, on couldn't refuse to give him, ta allow him to collect taxes, uh, refuse to give him authority to, to implement policies, to, to make statutes, administrative rules that impinged on these principles of fundamental justice. And, and so we inherited that notion. Mm -hmm. It theoretically is there now, and that's why our constitution allows us to represent, to elect our representatives to sit in the House of Commons with a job to constrain government if it should choose to abuse the power that it, that it has uh, for the legitimate purpose of upholding those principles of fundamental justice for, for everyone. Now, what happened, mm -hmm. and it happened in England before that uh, as well, is the king being constrained, I'll go back into England a little historically here, the king being constrained said, well, gee, look, this House of Commons isn't giving me money. It won't let me do what I want to do. It won't let me levy taxes. So what I will do is I will, I will create a whole bunch of, of uh, members of the House of Commons by creating a, uh, a, a member for a district where no one lives. Uh, and so you had many... Uh, mm many ridings created uh, where they were just purely there as, as agents of the, of the king. And so you had struggles going on constantly in this mm. regard that the, the, the king was trying to create this body. Then, then you had the, the, the Whigs that were created uh, in order to resist and uphold these principles of fundamental justice. And then, then even in those institutions, you find them beginning to compete among, among each other when you've got a position of power, it's almost inevitable that the people who will seek those positions of power um, have the greatest incentive to get into those positions of power are the persons who want to abuse the power. Uh, if you and I are running for an office right. and you want to do the right thing, uh, and I want to, to enrich myself and my friends and impose my policies, I can get people to give me a lot of money uh, to, to do my advertising, I can uh, get a uh, uh, very good promotion and the chance of winning is very great. So, so what we see, what we mm. saw in Canada is as, as in, in worse in Canada actually than in, in any other country that came out of the, the British system, what we saw is the political parties became extraordinarily powerful and the political parties began to dominate mm. the House of Commons such that you could never get a, a representative of the people. There's always a conflict between do you represent the people or do you represent your party? And now independents have almost no chance of being elected in our, in our system of government. And, and we've built, the right. House of Commons has put in right. a whole bunch of interesting constraints. I'll use a, just one illustration here. If you're a political party, um, for every vote you get, I don't know what the current figure is. You get $2 a year of taxpayers' money to support your party. So if, if, if I mm. was to run as, as a member of party X um, and, and, and I didn't win, my party would still get $2 a year uh, for every vote that I got. 
But if you ran as an independent, you have no party. So you don't get the $2. So, so, so the, the structure, once, once you get parties trying to take over the House of Commons to impose agendas rather than to uphold those principles of fundamental justice and, and administer government in a fair way, it's almost inevitable that, that uh, those who want to abuse the power will seek and, and gain those positions. And I think we're very, very much there now that governments see themselves not so much as trustees of the people, but as custodians of power, which they can use to achieve the ends they choose to impose. Right. You know, uh, Charles, I, I just uh, see that our time has pretty much gone for this segment, but I want you to hang in there for another segment. And I just want to thank you so much for just opening up this uh, uh, discussion right now, and we want to continue our discussion as to looking at the at the effects that this development has on Canada and its relationship with the people between the institutions, i.e., the institutions of government, parliament, and the average person. And uh, so, I want to thank you so much for your time on this segment. And is there any final comment as we close off this section uh, that you would like to leave with our viewers? I'd like to thank you for actually uh, inviting me, uh, and we'll see how we move move forward from here in in our next discussion. I thank you, Barry. Okay, great. Well, thank you. And thank you, our viewers, for um, being with us today as we're talking about trust in Parliament in Canada. And uh, stay with us because you will not want to miss our discussion as we continue this very important discussion. And as we've talked about many times, you may find that you may agree or disagree with the opinions expressed on this program, but we want to have open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca